Turn with me, please, to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We're continuing in uh, Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew, chapter 11, is an interesting chapter that we began last week. But I want us to focus now on verses 7 through 15. And we'll read that here in a second. But we come now to an interaction between Jesus and the crowds that were with him following this exchange between Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist in verses 1 through 6. Remember that last week. And if you remember that in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, we're going to be seeing examples of how people respond to Jesus Christ. In other words, to understand who Jesus is, we might need to understand how people react to him. And Matthew's gospel, particularly in chapters 11 and 12, gives us some of those scenes and explains some of this about who Jesus is by showing the interactions that people have responding to him. And so how many of us first heard of Christ and really had no idea who this man was? It's very common. To us, before we were saved, he was fictional because the stories we heard about Jesus were perhaps too fantastic for us to believe. But what we eventually discover about Jesus is that what we thought we knew, Jesus changes. And we see more abundantly what the truth about reality is, that it's bigger and more grand than we could have ever imagined on our own. And that's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of Christ saving us with his blood. We see reality for what it truly is, and it's much more grand than we could have ever imagined on our own. So remember, friends, this Jesus is a real man who was God incarnate. He was God and man, yes, at the same time, beyond what we could ever fathom. So now we have Jesus here in verses 7 through 15. He's turning to the crowds that were with him, and they were learning from his interaction and his teaching with John's disciples. And Jesus prepares to teach this crowd now something about who John the Baptist is. And at the same time, he's going to teach them something about themselves. He's going to teach them how something about them, about how they search for the truth about God. And, and they're, they're going to find out who Jesus is as they also discover who John the Baptist is. So if you'll stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's word, let's read Matthew chapter 11 verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What do you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Let's pray. Father God, you have allowed us the privilege of hearing from your word this morning. And I pray, God, that as we we listen to the words of your son, Jesus Christ, in this passage, as we listen to what he is teaching the crowds there, that you would also cause us to learn the exact lesson or the similar lesson that he is teaching. Show us, Father, what it is that is being taught here. Too often, Father, we pursue what we feel is truth or we pursue what we feel we want to pursue, but deep down there is a greater desire that we're actually longing for. And so I thank you, Lord, that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you show that to us and you reveal to us where we are in error and show us the truth of what we desire. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would do that for us here in this passage. Whoever is listening to these words, Lord, I pray that you would search their hearts, that your spirit would search within them and reveal within them exactly the truth of what they long for and what they long to possess. And Lord, ultimately, that is you and your truth and your presence and your grace. Help us, Father, to see exactly who your son, Jesus Christ, is here. And for this, Lord, we ask in the name of his, of Jesus, his name. Amen. Have a seat. God bless you guys. I want us to begin to understand this passage uh, by first, let's look at the last verse of this passage. Let's hear that first and then unpack the rest of verses 7 through 15. Here's what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's an important proclamation, isn't it? And this is a very common statement that we see throughout Scripture. Um, it's meant to add emphasis to an important proclamation. All that actually comes before this verse 15 should be taken seriously. It's what Jesus is saying. It's also got a little bit of a segue into what's going to come later. In verses 16 and following, we'll look at that next week. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anybody here ever have a problem with hearing things? All the husbands are raising their hand. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just earwax. That's the excuse. Amen. Who knows? We, 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 don't our minds get clouded with other thoughts? Don't our minds get clouded with other distractions? And we believe we hear what we hear, but we don't hear what is said or what is communicated. Now, I think what Jesus is emphasizing here, again, it's a common phrase. It was a common statement meant to add emphasis. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? The truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of who John the Baptist is, the truth of who God Almighty is. That's who Jesus is speaking about here. Jesus ends this proclamation concerning John the Baptist, and he wants to really drive the point home that there was a divinely important calling to John's ministry and to John himself. To And, and John's ministry was imperative and crucial to Jesus's coming in his ministry as well because it was prophesied as, as such. But we also see here that the purpose of John's proclamation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
was an eschatological purpose. We've used that word here before, eschatological meaning an end times purpose, meaning that as John the Baptist is establishing this ministry of repent for the kingdom of heaven is here and there's one coming who's coming to proclaim this and establish it, that ushered in an end times reality that judgment was here, but that all of the covenants of the Old Testament were coming to fruition. The covenant of Christ is now here. That was John's ministry. It was important. And it was God's purpose to establish his kingdom at the beginning of this final season, this final redemption of fallen humanity. Jesus comes on the scene to establish the kingdom of heaven as God's purpose to redeem us. Amen? Without John's ministry, Jesus' ministry would have, well, actually, John's ministry would have had no credibility without Jesus' ministry, and John's ministry ushers in Jesus' ministry. They work together. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming here. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. Here's what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That's an important point that Jesus wanted the crowds to hear. Here Jesus reminds everyone in this crowd that he's talking to, everyone who was listening, Jesus wanted them to remember that John was more than just this crazy preacher. I can't get away with being a crazy preacher. I can't wear the camel fur and the leather belt and I wouldn't be able to get out of the house that way and I've got to take a bath and eat more than honey and locusts. I've got to, you know, get my coffee and my bacon and eggs in the morning, you know. John the Baptist was this crazy preacher. We'll look at what he did a little bit and he is compared to Elijah for a reason and we're going to look at that. John the Baptist was a prophet of God, He was, but he was more than just a prophet according to the words of Jesus here. But he was in the tradition of Elijah. John the Baptist, he was not Elijah reincarnate as some foolish teachings have tried to connect. It's not that Elijah was somehow raised from the dead in John. It was that John was teaching, he was in this figure of Elijah, but he was fulfilling a prophecy. <laughs> Malachi. So what do we know about Elijah? Let's, in other words, in order to understand who John the Baptist is, looking at verses uh, 13 and 14, let's try to figure out who Elijah is, and that'll help us understand who John the Baptist was a little bit deeper. What do we know about Elijah? He was an Old Testament prophet. He prophesied at the time when the northern kingdom of Israel was divided. And what were they divided over? Yes, there was there was territorial division, but deeper still, there was a division between loyalty to God and devotion to Baal. They were, uh, it was a time of, of Israel's history where there was division in the spiritual. And this was Elijah's prof, this was his ministry. He prophesied he was God's man to speak truth to a people who were divided in their minds and divided in their loyalty to God. The division in Israel at the time, and we can look at 1 Kings to see a lot of this, saw a great religious decline. Elijah ministered during a great religious decline. It should be noted here that traditionally, historically, 
that religious decline ends in either repentance or in God's judgment. I'll let that sink in a little bit as we ponder these words. Some of you may be hearing this idea of spiritual decline and thinking, boy, that sounds familiar. Historically throughout Scripture, what follows a period of spiritual decline is either repentance or God's judgment. And this was Elijah's ministry. This was his time. Elijah was that crazy prophet who God fed in the wilderness. If you're taking notes, we read most, we read a lot about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, we know that God fed him in the wilderness with ravens. That sounds like a fantasy story of some kind. Yet it's biblical. This prophet Elijah lived in the wilderness and God fed him Ravens brought food to him. He raised the son of the widow in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. Remember that story? Elijah comes to the widow and by God's direction commands her to feed him and he becomes a part of this family and all is provided for them. Yet the son of this widow, remember she's already lost her husband. Now her son's gone. And Elijah, we see in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, a resurrection. And Elijah even, much like what we looked at with John the Baptist last week in verses 1 through 6 of Matthew 11, Elijah also suffered doubt and despair. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 19. So you see some similarities here already with Elijah and John the Baptist. But I think the single greatest message of Elijah the prophet was that the kingdom of Israel should repent and come to the Lord their God with full zeal and full passion. Not halfway, because when you come to God halfway, you're still in your old self. You're still in the old ways of of worshiping false gods and idols. And Elijah said, you worship God fully or you don't worship him at all. That was Elijah's message. Does that not sound a lot like John the Baptist's message as well? I mean, this this was the ministry of John the Baptist too. Just as Elijah, if you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah scoffs the prophets of Baal. You remember that? Here's what he says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That was Elijah. And Elijah also, he, he challenged King Ahaziah for calling on the God of Ekron instead of the God of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 1. Here's what Elijah says to the king. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebul, the God of Ekron? Challenging him. It's almost a sarcastic rhetorical question. Do you call upon this God of Ekron, Beelzebul, because there is no God in Israel? Challenging the king. To the point, ultimately he prophesies, king, you're going to go up to your chambers and you're not going to wake up tomorrow. Elijah didn't pull any punches. He was God's minister of, he was God's mouthpiece. John the Baptist, similar ministry. 
So does John the Baptist, he, he, just like Elijah does this, he calls uh, the people of Israel to be fervent for the Lord or not? John the Baptist does the same thing. If you remember over in Matthew chapter 3, if you want to flip over there, Matthew chapter 3, we looked at this a long time ago in our study here of Matthew's gospel. But back in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, this is, this is John the Baptist here. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, you who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John's ministry was the similar thing to Elijah. Don't assume because you are Abraham's children that you are in God's grace. In other words, love the Lord with all your might or don't love him at all. That's the ministry of Elijah. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. John, when he's he's there with the people, whenever they would come to him at the River Jordan, he would preach to them to repent and to choose between their Abrahamic heritage or the promised seed of Abraham, who is Jesus himself. That was the choice. You can't have both. In other words, you can't depend on both. You depend on Christ alone, or you don't depend on him at all. That was Elijah's message. That was John's message. That's what Jesus is pointing out here in Matthew chapter 11. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing out to the people who witnessed his interaction with John's disciples in verses 1 through 6 to heed the message of John. Choose who you will trust. Do you choose false hope? Or do you choose genuine salvation? Which is it? No in-between. That's what Jesus is setting the tone here for. Now, let's look at Matthew 7, um, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 7. Now let's, let's figure out now as Jesus, as we've looked at verses 15 and then going up to 13 and 14, let's, let's now go back to the beginning of this passage, verses 7 and following, and let's see exactly how Jesus is laying out this truth. Let's look here at verses 7 and 8. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Are you hearing the tone here of Jesus' words? This is the point of his words to the people. He asked them a series of rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? It's a purposeful question with a purposeful answer. In other words, you don't give the answer to the question The people hear the answer to the question in the question. That's what a rhetorical question is. And what is Jesus here doing? He's actually challenging the people who are standing there and witnessing all this. He's challenging them concerning their loyalty, their intent, what they desire most. What did you go out to see John for? (laughs) Right? Think about this. Uh, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He says in verse 7, a reed shaken by the wind. I mean, that's a crazy... Well, who would want to go out to the river to look at reeds? I mean, think about it. I mean, you can imagine, you know, John ministered there in the River Jordan and what what is along the banks of the River Jordan? A lot of reeds. I mean, if you go to a a body of water, you're going to see that stuff. 
right? Reeds on the banks, grass, different kind of things. What'd you do? Go out to the river to see all this stuff blowing in the breeze? Did you just need to go and meditate or something? You see what Jesus is saying here? Right? And then he asks even further. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Of course they didn't go out to see a man dressed in soft... If they wanted to see a man dressed in regal soft clothing, they would have stayed in the temple and been ministered to by the priests. Yet they go out to the Jordan, out into the wilderness, to go see this crazy preacher who probably hadn't had a bath in a long time, didn't care really what he smelled like or looked like because he was dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt and didn't really care what he said because what he was saying was directly from God himself. What do you do? Do you go out there and you look for all this fancy stuff, this religious stuff that makes you feel more comfortable? Or did you go out to see a man who was speaking truth? See, Jesus is asking these questions of the people there to get them to really ponder, what is it that I really am looking for? They know what they're looking for, but Jesus is really posing the question, do you really know what you're looking for? What he's saying here, at least, is to go visit the crazy preacher who lived in the wilderness meant that you were looking for something. That's not normal behavior. How many of y'all have been out into the wilderness listening to crazy preachers preach on a tree stump lately? Maybe we should do that. Let's just go set up a, a, a preaching event or something out there and just get people who come out to this crazy thing out of the farm. Anybody got a farm we can go to and just right by the river? and We'll just start preaching crazy stuff. I actually preach truth and they'll think it's crazy, but it's truth. Amen. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know. We don't do that stuff anymore. Let's look here at Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. Now Jesus continues the list of rhetorical questions. Now this last rhetorical question in verse 9 drives the point home. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Of course. That's who you went to see. I tell you, more than a prophet. They were drawn to John the Baptist because what John was preaching was true. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that's what these crowds were going to hear. There was something in the ministry of John the Baptist that meant something. They didn't go out there just to play games. They didn't go out there just to experience nature. They went out there to hear the truth. A prophet, a man of God. All of the people who went to see John knew what they were seeking. They were seeking to hear from a man of God, a prophet. Whether one is honest with themselves or not, it's, it doesn't matter here because Jesus is pointing to the truth. You thought you knew what you were looking at, but let's really drive the point home. Yes, you went out to hear a man of God. Yes, you went out to hear a prophet. But Jesus concludes here, yes, I tell you more than a prophet. And that's why Jesus is now telling a little bit more about who John the Baptist was. He's testifying about who he was. He's testifying that John was the one prophesied to come. And deep down, all who were coming out to listen to John, they followed him and they realized that they were in the presence of greatness. And so who is this John the Baptist? He, he was the one prophesied to prepare to come 
and, and prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, the one to come. You remember last week when we were looking in, in verse 3 of chapter 11? Right, let's read verse 2 and 3. Here's the words of Jesus. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, actually the words of John, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Do you remember that? That was John's question of doubt to Jesus. Are you the one to come or are we looking for another? Remember, the one to come was the one prophesied Numerous times, and we looked at several passages in the Old Testament about that. Jesus was coming to fulfill this. But what does Jesus say here um, in, in verse 10? This is he of whom it is written, talking about John, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is what Jesus means, that John the Baptist, yes, he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Because he's citing here Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Go ahead and flip over to uh, the book of Malachi. It's not far from the book of Matthew. Just flip to the left a few pages and you'll find it because Malachi's prophecy is the last one we see before the New Testament period. Malachi chapters 3 and 4, if you'll hold those pages open there. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. It's the words of the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger prophesied here in Malachi 3 is talking about the Lord who will come suddenly. And this was John the Baptist. He was the messenger preaching this message that the Lord is coming suddenly. And it also ends up here at in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Look at that, those last words of Malachi. These would actually be the last words of God spoken through his prophets for nearly 400 more years until the time of John the Baptist. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 11. Letting the people know, reminding them, and actually putting the point to them. You came to search out a prophet, but let me tell you who you were seeing. You were seeing the one prophesied by Malachi. And so now I, Jesus, am the one that John is pointing to. You see what's happening here? Now notice the words of the prophet Malachi, if you still have your finger there, he says, and the Lord whom you seek, that's the one coming who's Jesus. And so to be drawn to the messenger John is to be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ who comes after. That's, that's Jesus' point here in Matthew 11. The final prophecy of Malachi pointed to the one like Elijah. When you look at Malachi 4, verse 5, the one like Elijah who will call for repentance before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And that language of the great and awesome day of the Lord is end times language. There's, there's judgment coming. And when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of heaven, as he does in the gospels and 
we're continuing in this season of the kingdom of heaven now, but not yet fulfilled. This is where the season that we're in here. The ministry of John the Baptist was preordained by God to set the stage of this end time coming of the kingdom, this end time final day of the Lord, the day of judgment. That's John's ministry. And this is why Jesus proclaims John the Baptist to be the greatest of all men ever born. That's what he says here in Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I know, I love how Jesus uses the language here. Those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus was born of Mary, yet the implication here is John is the greatest of all men born the right natural way. I, Jesus, was born the miraculous way. Not normal. That's why I am Christ. You see what he's saying here? This is why Jesus proclaims John the Baptist to be the greatest prophet that ever would be sent by God because John's ministry was the one that ushers in Jesus' ministry. What an honor. So in verse 12, when we look here following that, here's what Jesus says in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this one verse can open up a lot of different thinking here if we're not careful. So let's take a look at verse 12. Jesus now has laid out exactly who John the Baptist was by also challenging the crowds there about what they were searching for. And now he comes to verse 12. And he, just, and he clearly describes here what the ministries of John and the ministries of Jesus are experiencing, what they look like. The ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, they did suffer great violence and persecution. There's no disagreement there in the Scriptures. Right? John, speaking in, in chapter 11, by this point, John is actually in prison for how he spoke truth to Herod. Jesus eventually would face persecution, crucifixion, suffering. Clearly, there are ministries of truth, God's direction through John and his son, Jesus Christ, would re be, be met with violence and persecution. But we have to look here at verse 12 as well, because I think verse 12 actually ties in a lot to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. When we look here at verse 12 in Matthew 11... The translation I have, and I looked at the King James as well. The King James has a very similar translation. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. You may read that and think, rightly so, that their ministries face a lot of persecution and violence. Yes. But if you look at that one verse, another translation says that uh, uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now... Um, the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently. Has been coming violently. Coming rushing in. Even the, the, the NIV, the way it translates this, that the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful, forceful men lay hold of it. Right? 
When you look back at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the prophet Malachi says this, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So there's language here of a sudden rushing onto the scene. When things radically change the way that Jesus' ministry ushered in, how does that make people feel? How do y'all react when your normal routine gets disrupted? Can you imagine how the religious folks were feeling because their routine was suddenly disrupted? Not to mention the religious folks, but the common folks who were seeking out the truth of God's kingdom, who were longing for the day that the Messiah would come. It was not a gradual thing that just appeared. The language here is that the kingdom of heaven is rushing in like a violent coming in. In other words, not violence like I'm going to slaughter people and come in, but it came in so forcefully and and so radically, it was like a violent awakening. Wow. And those who respond to it, according to the latter half of verse 12, and the violent Take it by force. That doesn't mean a military language of we're going to take back the kingdom at all means necessary. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In other words, this verse 12 is not justification for Christians today to take up arms. The language here is that of the kingdom of heaven is so rushing in and and forceful that it grabs people who are not awake and it's like a violent shaking but it's the truth because it's the kingdom of heaven. And this is why this sudden and powerful nature of the kingdom being established, that one must also confirm that this all must have been from the hand of God himself. But if this sudden and powerful nature of the kingdom that's coming rushing in is this nature of a sudden and violent or powerful coming force, How do you respond to it? Does it come in so violently and so forcefully that it just goes over your head and you miss it? Or do you respond to it in kind? The second part of verse uh, verse 12 here, and the violent take it by force, it's a statement by Jesus That implies clearly the religious establishment that they did cause suffering, but secondly, the ones who rushed to the kingdom of heaven, like the ones who rushed to John the Baptist out in the wilderness, they'll do so in such a way that they're like a violent cloud rushing to the message of the kingdom. They're violently wanting to seize the kingdom because that's what they've been longing for and hungering for for so long. In other words, the reaction to John's message of repentance and the preparation for the Messiah combined with Jesus' message and his miraculous activity shows the kingdom and it resulted in an aggressive, passionate response. Wow. Remember at the first part of this passage, we're looking at verses 7 through 15, Jesus is using rhetorical language with the, with the crowds. What is it that you went out to the wilderness to see? Did you just go out there to watch nature and watch the wind blow the weeds? No, you went out there because there was something violent coming on the scene, something passionate coming on the scene, something from the hand of God Himself. The kingdom of heaven is now here. 
It's not a passive thing. It's full of love and grace and truth. But it's not something that is passive, that you just sit and enjoy the wind blowing through the trees. Those who would flock to John the Baptist, and then those who would actually flock to Jesus as well, they became this, they, they came because of this sudden presence of the truth. And this truth of God draws them like a violent crowd, a, a violence that's not aggressive, but more akin to like a, a zeal, an ardent zeal. Let's just be honest here. I, I've had this conversation with a few folks this week, and I've had it often over the years. There's something about our present time that we no longer have the zeal for much of anything. Part of it is that we are very affluent. I like my air conditioning when the temperature outside is 100 degrees plus, don't you? We're comfortable. I like the fact that I know where my food is. Our pantries are full of food right now. That's a good thing. But are we hungry for the gospel? Are we hungry for the truth of God? Are we stirred up to passion? That's part of what Jesus here is saying to the crowds. The point of his words here is to show that those who pass by John the Baptist, those who even pass by Jesus' ministry as well, if they pass by with contempt, if they pass by with closed eyes, they're going to miss the power of God that is so visible in both John's ministry and even Jesus' ministry. Are you that passive? What did you do? Just go out there to listen to a wild, crazy preacher just to enjoy the day? Or did you go out there because there was something radical that was grabbing your heart and grabbing your soul? A passive response according to what I'm reading here, is inexcusable. You can't have a passive response to the gospel. The truth preached as it was by John the Baptist will result in men and women who cherish the love of God that is poured out on them and they will rush forward as if it were this violent, passionate, zealous or zealous struggle. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Now, that, that does not mean that the only genuine conversion is one that is so radical that you are emotional and weeping and snotting all over the altar. And it's not, in other words, a genuine conversion is not always a Damascus Road moment like Paul where you're knocked off the horse and you're blinded. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. But the zeal and the passion to react to the nature of the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus is talking about here as he's describing who John the Baptist was. The truth preached is that those who genuinely respond to this message of repentance is ones who cherish the love of God as it's poured out on them. That's what Jesus is pointing out as he's describing who John is. So let me ask you this as we close. The message of Elijah is echoed in this passage. The message of Elijah to choose who you will follow this day. Is the Lord God your God or is Baal? You can't follow both. 
one or the other. This message of Elijah is echoed through John the Baptist and finally through Jesus himself. So my question to you is, are you torn between two choices? Are you divided in your heart? If you are not aware of that, I would ask, because we all at some level have some division within our sinful hearts. I would ask that you really pray and and seek the Lord's wisdom asking the Lord to reveal to you anywhere that you may not even realize that you're divided. Are you torn? I get, And this really struck me home. It really struck me in the last couple of weeks as I've been prayerfully thinking and praying through and studying through this. It even struck me, is there zeal for the kingdom of heaven? Is there zeal? I want us to close with one last passage. If you'll flip over to Romans chapter 12. We're not going to read all of this passage, but if you want to bookmark it and take some notes, uh, this one passage really struck me heavily this week. Romans chapter 12. I've read it hundreds of times, but it just really resonated with this context of what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 9, Romans chapter 12, Paul is sharing what a true Christian looks like. He says in beginning in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Notice there's no gray area there. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 11, and this one drives home, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That one verse, verse 11, Romans 12, I think sums up directly what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist and the power of the message of the gospel. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Can we say that John the Baptist was zealous and fervent in spirit? Can we say the same about Christ our Lord? Can we say the same about ourselves? Folks, let's, let's just, I don't want, I want us to understand here what Jesus is saying. This is not a Bible thumping over the head message, but it is a serious truth. And he's pointing out who John the Baptist is by pointing out his message by saying this was the Elijah that you've been looking for. Just as Elijah was bold in his proclamation of the truth, so was John. And it all leads to me, Jesus Christ, he says. Not anything passive. It's been coming from the very beginning of time. And at this moment of history, as Jesus is teaching here, as he, he speaks to John's disciples who come and ask him the question, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Jesus then, as he, as he compassionately deals with John's disciples, he turns to the crowds who were there witnessing this interaction and says, now what about you? Did you know who John was? Were you fooling yourself? Are you blind to the truth of what's been happening? 
Let's all, if we're Christians in this room, let's take that message to heart. Are we currently, are we fervent in spirit serving the Lord or are we slothful in zeal? You may be in this room or you may be listening to this sermon right now. We have a podcast as well. We, we take these sermons and put them up on the, out in the podcast fear, whatever you call that stuff. Maybe you don't know Christ at all. Maybe you're in this room and you say, I, I don't even know, I don't, why should I be zealous for Jesus? I don't know who He is. Let me challenge us all that the truth of the gospel is here in this word. And to be flippant about it is to miss it. To be flippant about the passionate zeal that prophets like John the Baptist and our, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ expressed in this word, that passion is not something that is flippant. And if you respond to the truth of the gospel, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, you're going to miss the truth. Because if you, if, if the Lord is really dealing in your heart and He really in, in, in reveals to you how you are disobedient to Him and you hear the possibility of redemption and salvation, oh, wouldn't you want to go running to it? Let's pray. Father God, we, we love you and we, we love your word. And sometimes we who have been in the faith for a while, those that you have redeemed with the blood of your son, those that you have changed and made new, sometimes we are so happy and joyful in this new life that we become so complacent. We forget how violently it came upon us, this realization of who we are, that we're sinners. And so God, I pray this morning that as you you just settle in our spirits this morning as we've we've listened to you speak to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in your word. I pray, God, that your spirit now would now rest in each and every one of us and ponder in our minds and in our souls what we've heard. Are we, are we complacent? Are we passionate in zeal? Are we fervent in serving you? Or are we... Not. Lord, we don't do this out of obligation. We do this out of gratitude that if your son, Jesus Christ, was so willing to usher in the kingdom of heaven for our sake, and we've been made new. Oh, you're so much worthy of our zeal. So God, I pray that you would just be truthful to us that you would soften our hearts toward our hard hearts, and that you would cause us to really, really come running to your presence like a crowd rushing to hear the truth. And so, God, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. And those who are hearing these words, Lord, that you are dealing with, Lord, that they would be awakened to who they are and they would come to you as your spirit prods them. And dear God, let the word of your son, Jesus Christ, ring true in their hearts. We thank you, Father, for this time and we we worship you with humility, but also 
with passion. Let this word of yours settle as you desire it to settle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.